McLean is your supply chain advantage in action. By combining world-class procurement, logistics, merchandising, and technology solutions, McLean empowers you to buy better, sell smarter, and profit more. To learn more, visit mcleanco.com. Hi there, and welcome to another episode of At Your Convenience. I'm your host, Jackson Lewis, and I'm joined today by Dennis Rubin, Executive Managing Director of NRC Realty and Capital Advisors. Denny, I really appreciate you coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. Uh, we're here to talk about M&A in the CE store space, and it's been quite a year. So I, I got to get this question out of the way first. Uh, you know, we're pulling out of the pandemic, but you can't not talk about it still. Uh, how, if at all, did COVID-19 affect M&A in the CE store space this past year? Well, I think originally, you know, kind of March is when things started to shut down. I, I think throughout the you know, remainder of 2020, you saw pretty much lower fuel volumes because people weren't driving as much. There was a dramatic reduction in, in uh, um, volumes. On the other hand, it was generally offset by considerably higher fuel margins. And in a lot of the deals we saw that the increase in fuel margins more than offset the reduction in the, in the fuel volumes. So that kind of wanted to be in a push. Um, as far as inside sales, it was interesting. Uh, a lot of the deals we saw showed increases in inside sales, frankly, because people didn't want to venture out very far. They didn't want to go into big grocery stores where there were lots of people. And then a lot of the grocery stores were actually limiting the numbers of people that could come in. So people tended to go to convenience stores more. And uh, I think that the good thing, too, is a lot of convenience stores adapted to COVID by changing the, the mix of goods that they sold. They, they were willing to sell, you know, everything from masks to hand sanitizer, hand sanitizer to the other kinds of things people were looking for. So I think the C stores adapted pretty well. Now, they also there was a cost associated with that in terms of increased labor, the plastic plexiglass um, partitions and things like that. But I think that, um, you know, what mostly what we saw was a, generally either uh, flat or an increased sales on the inside, uh, kind of what I call the new COVID normal. Uh, when we've done deals kind of post-COVID, people generally, buyers have said, we'd like to see the numbers, you know, during the COVID period to see how those compare with the prior six months, for example. And, and you know, generally speaking, we were able to work people through things in a way that they got comfortable with it. So of the deals we closed, we started pre-COVID, but didn't close till we were in the thick of things. We didn't see any deals where the prices got re revised or renegotiated because of COVID. So that was a healthy thing. Now, I mean, <clears throat> the other thing I will say, <clears throat> excuse me, there were some delays in terms of deals getting closed. Um, once COVID hit, most of the major C-store companies kind of just took a pause for four or five months and just said they wanted to kind of get through what they were working on to try to deal with the uh, COVID situation before they really got serious about um, M&A again. But in the one case, um, as soon as you know that kind of uh, pause period ended, you know we resumed where we were and we closed the deal with no changes at all. So I, I think that on balance, um, you know people kind of weathered the storm pretty well, and I, we didn't see any significant negative effects on on pricing and deals getting done. Yeah, absolutely. I, I know on our end that uh, we were predicting that COVID would cause a huge upset, but you know, uh, really, like you said, it just seemed to create a slight pause and and then everything seemed to mostly move forward as as planned 
Um, on that, uh, what do you think were some of the most notable C-Store acquisitions this past year, and, and, and why do you think that's the case? Well, I mean, you obviously have to mention the 7-Eleven acquisition of Speedway, which is not only the biggest deal of the year, probably the biggest deal in the history of the industry. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, 7-Eleven's been aggressive on acquisitions. They consistently have been. Um, we, we've, we've sold many things to them. We've actually represented them on a number of sales, and we'll talk about that in a little while. But, I mean, um, obviously the way it kind of played out at the end with the conflicting letters from FTC commissioners kind of got a little interesting. I mean, uh, you know, knowing 7-Eleven as I do, I'm confident they, you know, absolutely believe that they had all the clearances and comfort they needed in order to close that deal. So I think it was kind of a surprise that those kinds of things showed up. But that was clearly the, you know, the game changer of the year. And, um, you know, so that's obviously they have a lot of stores to integrate now. So that was clearly number one far and above anything else. I mean, some other things that are worthy of note, I think, uh, uh, Murphy Oil's acquisition of Quickmart. Uh, Murphy Oil had not done uh, much in the M&A world previous to that. And, you know, that Quickmart deal, that was a big transaction for them. And I think some of the things I've read so far, they're very pleased with the way it's gone and uh, how they've integrated that into their their system. And I think that's, you know, probably something uh, we'll see more of in the future from them in terms of strategic acquisitions. Another one is Casey's acquisition of Buchanan Energy. Uh, I, I know a lot about that deal, actually on both sides of it. I mean, that was a new deal for Casey's too, because number one, Casey's had not heretofore done, to my knowledge anyway, any significant uh, M&A transaction. So this was a big deal for them. It was like 93 stores and it was like $580 million. It was a big deal. But more importantly, there was a significant wholesale component to that. So, I mean, Casey's was going to venture into the wholesale component uh, world of, of, of you know, uh, you know, wholesale distrib- distribution. And that's kind of a new thing for them. So I think that was a noteworthy transaction. Um, the other one that comes to mind is kind of GPM. Uh, you know, they did completed the Empire transaction. Uh, they also did another 63rd deal in Michigan. Uh, they clearly have been very acquisitive over the last, not just one year, but several years. And then recently announced that billion dollar sale leaseback facility that they acquired to do more deals. So, I mean, clearly GPM is, um, you know, going to be uh, one of the top players in the M&A scene for, for quite a while. So those are the, the major deals that I think uh, were worthy of, of note in 2020. Absolutely. And the last time that you and I spoke on this, uh, we talked a lot about this trend that only seems to be continuing about big chains getting bigger and it becoming increasingly difficult for small to mid-sized chains to participate in the M&A market in this industry. Uh, can you go in, into a little bit on that and, and why you think that's the case? Well, there are a couple of things. Number one, um, the big operators uh, clearly can pay more because they have infrastructure that they can, you know, they can spread the cost among their entire network. That's number one. Number two, they either can fund acquisitions out of either cash flow or lines of credit that they have and typically don't need to go get real estate appraisals like the, the smaller players would. And, and so if you take an example uh, on a smaller mid-sized player that wants to you know, compete in a 30 or 40 store acquisition, typically they're going to have to go out and get uh, real estate appraisals and, and the banks will ch- typically limit how much they will advance to, I don't know, seven, 65 to 80 percent of the lesser of purchase price or appraised value, uh, which means that, you know, the bidder's going to have to come up with a lot of money out of pocket. And if the things, if the company's trading at a eight, nine, 10 multiple of EBITDA, I mean, you know, you could have situations where 
uh, players would have to come up with 30 to 40 percent of the purchase price from his own cash flow and equity in order to make the deal work. And for a lot of smaller players, they just don't have that and um, you know, or, or can't justify doing it. And then the other thing is you got the environmental issue. Most of the big players are, are OK with dealing with environmental risk. They'll get environmental insurance. They'll do escrows or holdbacks, whatever. Lenders don't look at it that way. A lot of real estate lenders, if there's a property with a potential problem, they'll want to do a phase two, typically, which most sellers don't want to allow, but or they'll say they won't finance it. So, I mean, if you have a, a buyer that's counting on a lender to finance the whole acquisition and a few properties drop out because of environmental concerns, all of a sudden, you know, that buyer may not have the resources to close. So, I mean, when when on, on, we're advising a seller, if we have um, one all cash offer, and another offer that's even higher, that's got a financing contingency in it, we'll probably recommend that our client take the cash offer because mm -hmm. there's just too much uncertainty that goes along with offers that are subject to financing. There's just underwriting, real estate appraisal, environmental. You know, we've just seen it too often. With you know things that come up that also you know people can't solve, and as a result, the big players don't care about appraisals. Uh, they can just write the check. And that's a big deal. Then you have the other kind of economic issues that make it tough to compete. I mean, the fact of the matter is they're just larger economies of scale for the bigger players. I mean, they can they can pay more. Um, you know, their cost of capital is, is a lot less. I mean, even if they have to borrow off their line, it's clearly a much lower interest rate than what a mid-sized operator would have to pay for a bank. And um, so those are those are both economic and um, you know financial issues that you know have caused. The consolidation of this industry, I think. Yeah, I mean it. It that definitely reflects what we're seeing, and uh, yeah, I we definitely noticed this year that uh, there there were still plenty of of deals despite COVID, but it it really seemed like there were you know just uh, the number of huge outsized deals from a, a you know variety of different size chains. You know, it it seems most that that's that's happening a lot less now. It it seems a whole lot less focused with the a whole lot more focused on the big guys, and uh, it it seems like there's uh, you know less and less for the small to mid sized chains participating. I can't think of the last M and A deal we did where we represented the seller, where mm -hmm. we closed it with subject to financing. I mean, you know, and that doesn't mean we didn't have offers from people who wanted financing. But at the end of the day, our, when we dealt with our client and talked to them, I think they all wanted the certainty of closing uh, and were willing to go with somebody who could just write a check at the closing. Yeah. So uh, with all of these deals that are going on, uh, you said when we talked last time that it's likely that we're going to see more portfolio rationalization moving forward. Can you talk about what exactly that means and why yeah. that's the case? I mean, you know, it's kind of been the press. We're actually doing a deal right now for Circle K of about 250 sites throughout North America, U.S. and Canada. And, you know, this is where, you know, per periodically companies like Circle K and other players have gone through their portfolio and realized that certain assets don't make as much sense. Either their, their geography is not right. They have, a, you know, they've done an acquisition and maybe, maybe they have two stores within a block of each other. So one of them doesn't make sense. Uh, they're hard to supply to uh, a number of different factors. And so, you know, these companies tend to want to go through their portfolio and realize that they're probably better off to sell these stores and redeploy the capital for other things. So that's exactly what we're doing right now for Soka K. We've done six or seven sales for 7-Eleven, which were exactly the same thing. And typically, 
what kind of brings this about is when a lot of these companies are doing the M&A transactions, they're buying a whole company. If you're a seller, you're not willing to sell just 10 of your stores or out of 12. You want to sell all of them. Uh, buyers, on the other hand, may not want all of them, but they know they got to take them all to get the deal done. So in a lot of these acquisitions, you'll see situations where a buyer will take all the stores because they have to. And then they turn around later on and realize they're going to some of them don't work. They don't fit. They're not big enough. Uh, you know, 7-Eleven's got a certain size of box that they want, geography, a lot of different things. And then they'll just decide there's a subset of those that they need to sell off. And we've done that for a lot of the other players, other players too, smaller players that have just realized that, you know, probably every year or so, companies ought to look at their portfolio and perhaps peel off the bottom 10% that are not performing that well and redeploy the capital. So we're, I think you'll see more of that, uh, both in terms of companies that, you know, don't even do a lot of M&A, and particularly those that do. And looking toward the future a little bit as we're winding down here, uh, last time we talked, you also shared some predictions about outside capital making its way into the industry. What can you tell us about that? Well, there's, there's a, more than I've seen in a long time, there's a number of private equity firms that are coming in this space. They, they like the industry, um, you know, I mean, probably the, the first one that got involved a while back was Fortress. You know, Fortress uh, originally bought United Oil, and uh, they also bought Pacific Convenience and Gas. And those two deals alone put them on the map with about 400 stores. Uh, recently, it was announced that Fortress is, did a joint venture with Alta Convenience Stores in Colorado to do a 50-50 JV, which is a little different for them. But Fortress is a good example of a private equity firm that has, you know, been very aggressive in this space. But there's others, too. There's probably a half a dozen others that have contacted me. Uh, and our company just saying we're looking for deals anywhere throughout the country. Uh, you know, obviously they want it big enough to be a platform that they can grow off of, you know, at least 20, 30 stores, that type of thing. But I think you're going to see more of that. I, I do think this. I think it will be a little interesting to see whether some of these private equity firms can compete because they typically don't have a building infrastructure. And uh, so they're going to have to figure out, you know, their, you know, overhead structure that may affect and reduce what they can bid on sites compared to say a Circle K and a 7-Eleven that already have the built-in infrastructure. So we'll see. I mean, we've had some good bids on some deals from private equity firms. So uh, I think that will continue. I mean, that's that's really exciting. Uh, anything else uh, about the year moving forward that uh, you want to talk about uh, before we wind down here? I mean, all I would say is this. I think that from talking to you know our, my peers and that type of thing, I don't think that I don't see any big deals out there looming on the horizon. I think the big companies that are still out there, they're either public or they're family owned with a succession plan or there's no real desire to sell. I don't see a Wawa sale coming in the future. Yeah. I don't see a come and go or uh, sheets um, or uh, 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 racetrack, that type of thing. I, I just don't envision those things, I think. So as a result of that, I think that what you're going to see in M&A in the next year or two are the mid-sized companies, the 25 to 75 store guys that, again, may not have a succession plan, that realize it's tough to compete, that, you know, they are not able to be competitive with um, the big players for M&As, deals if they, uh, on sites that may be uh, valuable to them or, or complementary to their market and that type of thing. So I think people have to decide, are they going to grow organically? which means new stores. And, and that's kind of a tough, you know, gamble. I mean, just because you find a site that's a, a good uh, parcel 
doesn't mean when you put a store on it, it's going to do well. I mean, that's a real gamble, which is frankly, not to digress, but I think one of the reasons people are willing to pay a bigger multiple, higher multiple for existing stores is because it's a known commodity. You're paying for a known cash flow. If you build a new store, I mean, you know, you could pay $3 million for it with land building and equipment. And the, ne the day after it opens, nobody cares what you paid for it. It's all about what it performs and cash flows. And we've had people come to us and say, <clears throat> well, I have this store that hasn't performed. I want to sell it. First question I ask is, what was the cash flow? And they tell me and I apply multiple. And they say, well, I paid twice as much for that. And my response is, nobody cares. I mean, <laughs> you know, it only matters what you pay for it until the day you open. And after that, people kind of ignore the construction cost. It's all about cash flow and EBITDA and that type of thing. So again, I think, you know, I think that for the smaller players, I mean, there, there's some great operators out there that have 20, 30 stores that are building one or two a year without a cash flow or bank relationships, and that's fine. But I think there's a, a, a lot of other chains. If you look at what announcements have been coming out lately, is it is it's 10 to 30 store players that are choosing to get out, you know, and, and selling because Again, it's the right time. Multiples are an all-time high. The big players are paying pretty big multiples for things still, and uh, you know it's it's tough to compete with the big players. So, yeah. Well, on that note, uh, Denny, big thanks again for coming on the show and lending your expertise. Oh, really appreciate having you, you on. Guys. Thank you. Of course. And uh, listeners, be sure to check out more on this uh, in the update to the Top 202 story, uh, both online and in the magazine. And we will see you next time. Thank you. McLean is your supply chain advantage in action. By combining world-class procurement, logistics, merchandising, and technology solutions, McLean empowers you to buy better, sell smarter, and profit more. To learn more, visit mcleanco.com.